I could not understand how to go through life apart from an incarnation where God himself not only took on flesh, but suffered in the flesh. Welcome to the Still Christian Podcast, where we retrace our steps through evangelical culture, finding a new way forward without abandoning our faith. I'm Sarah. I'm Katie. And we're Still Christian. This week, we have a special guest, Greg Jeffers, who is a theological Anglican, a lay minister, a professor. That's how I think of you. You're a high school student, teacher at a classical school. What do you teach, Greg? Teach theology. And a dear friend, Greg Jeffers. Did I miss anything, Greg? Uh, No, I think that's pretty much sums me up. Thanks for being here with us. For sure. Maybe one key thing to say is that Greg is here to share his story of suffering with us because we're still in our suffering series. Greg, tell us a little bit about what life looks like these days and what maybe what's a typical day in your, your life. Well, sure. Uh, so I tend to think of myself as wearing two basic hats. Um, hat number one is father to my brood of children, three girls, all under 10 years old. And Uh, The other hat I wear is I teach theology to uh, high school juniors at a classical Christian school. So for that, I do a lot of highbrow academic reading and thinking and writing. Mm -hmm. And and I come home and it's it's like humility is built into being a parent. And (laughs) when you when you find yourself in a power struggle with your seven year old trying to get her to pick her stuff up off the floor and you find yourself like, I'm going to win this, but you're not probably. (laughs) <laughs> um, it's a sign of, you're, it's a way for God to teach you patience and a need for grace. And I'm married to a wonderful woman, Amanda. She's a nurse, so she saves lives. Um, I save souls though, I think. So, so, yeah. <laughs> so who's the real winner here? <laughs> awesome. Well, Greg, thanks so much for being here and being willing to just open up, share who you are, because I think suffering becomes a part of our story and a part of who we are. So we really don't take it lightly that you've agreed to come and share your story with us here. So help us understand what is your story? What has happened in your life? And kind of bring us, if you can, bring us through that to where you are today. Do you still deal with this or these things? We are all ears. Sure. So um, I would never have used the word suffering because Mm -hmm. that sounds so passive and hmm. victimish and I don't want to be a passive victim. Uh, but the truth is I was abused um, as a kid by a close family member and over the course of five or six years, especially. And I remembered some of it, but forgot a lot of it. Um, mm-hmm. Or my, my mind protected me from the memories. And I went into um, adulthood beset by uh, severe anxiety, bouts of depression and anger issues that I didn't, couldn't explain. I didn't understand where they came from. And it was in towards the end of uh, grad school. Yeah, towards the end of grad school when I, when I got married that what I came to understand to be OCD first popped up. Just brief explainer, OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder. It's not funny. <laughs> you sometimes see like in the culture like oh i'm so ocd because i organize all my clothes mm-hmm. by color and if you enjoyed that that's not ocd <laughs> right no person with ocd who thought they had to organize their clothes by color would have enjoyed the experience mm-hmm. so you know i found myself beset by these obsessive thoughts and in my case they're just severely immoral sort of thoughts that i would say cheat on my wife or mm-hmm. harm someone violently and I hated the thoughts and I thought to myself, what kind of a, what kind of a terrible person must I be mm. to be experiencing 
experiencing such thoughts. And so I would confess these thoughts ad nauseum to my wife, which was really helpful to, <laughs> I'd say that sarcastically, sarcasm and bitterness are my love language. So. Noted. Uh, I would confess these thoughts obsessively to her, but also to spiritual leaders, uh, church leaders, and was re regularly reassured, of course, no, you know, that's just temptation. Just, you know, fight the devil and resist him and he'll flee from you, was the counsel wow. I was generally given. And like, the thing was, I was like, I'm not tempted. Like, mm. This is not a temptation for me. I don't, I don't want this. I would never in a million years. Yeah. I later heard it explained as a sort of mental allergy mm. that you, you have a thought that you are deeply allergic to, morally allergic to, um, in my case. And so you respond by attempting to, to like get rid of the thing in the same way that your body reacts to a bad allergy. That is such a refreshing reframe that actually the things you're most terrified sins you're most terrified of committing and would never in a million years do like that is what your mind is wrestling with versus I'm so likely to do this that's why I'm fighting temptation I really appreciate that a therapist I had later described the thoughts as ego dystonic as opposed to ego syntonic mm -hmm. so ego dystonic thoughts are thoughts you don't want to have and you wish you didn't mm -hmm. have and you, you don't derive any pleasure from them over time I had increasingly terrible terrible obsessive thoughts about all sorts of horrible things I could do to people and my family. And I would tell this to my therapist. I'm like, are you going to call the police? Mm. And he's like, no, these thoughts distress you. I would think that if they were a delicious fantasy for you, then you wouldn't be in my office. Mm. But if I thought you were a psychopath, for sure. But you're, I mean, these clearly trouble you and bother you. Yeah. And that was really, really encouraging to hear that this is an overactive mind really attempting to do moral police work. The real thing is we all have weird thoughts sometimes. You may have had the thought once or twice. So you look up, you see an airplane, you're like, I wonder what happened if that crashed. But like, then you move on with your life. But someone like me would think, oh, what happened if that plane crashes? And then like, oh my gosh, what kind of horrible person am I? That it would even, that would even occur to me. Am I hearing correctly that the thoughts you're having almost automatically lead you to then judge yourself for having the thought? Oh yeah, that's a good point. Yes. It's funny, the church historically called this problem scrupulosity. Hmm, I've never heard that word before. Well, yeah. So there are manuals going back into the Middle Ages telling priests what to do when they have someone who keeps coming and confessing the same sins over and over and over and over and over again. And the very first thing you're supposed to do is tell the person they can't go to see any other priest but you. And then the second thing you're supposed to do is to regularly expose them to these like make them sit with their thoughts, don't immediately absolve them. And hmm. that mirrors very well what cognitive behavioral therapy, specifically exposure response prevention therapy, which is the gold standard for treating OCD, um, does in the modern. And so scrupulosity now is understood in the psychological literature as a as a subset of OCD. I am persuaded, for example, that Martin Luther suffered from, from scrupulosity. Can I read a quick definition of it from Google? Yep. Go for it. Scrupulosity is a psychological disorder primarily characterized by pathological guilt or obsession associated with moral or religious issues that is often accompanied by compulsive moral or religious observance and is highly distressing and maladaptive. Yeah, that. sure I'm understanding what you are sharing with us. So after having suffered abuse as a child, you experienced anger and I feel like there's one, oh, you experienced anger and anxiety as an adult that you didn't know where it came from. 
And then after that, or maybe as part of that, you started experiencing these obsessive thoughts. At what point did you realize it was OCD? And also if there's more to the story that you'd like to share, please do. I don't mean to cut you off. No, sure. So the thing is, and this is something I discovered much later in therapy, I had internalized one of the messages my abuser regularly told me, which was, I am a gross boy and no one can love me. Um, No one will ever love you. Even Jesus, right? Jesus doesn't love you. And so I kind of internalized this notion. And so when I found myself married and I suddenly had this intimate relationship for the first time since I was abused, really, and it triggered that, like, I'm gross, mm. I'm disgusting, I'm horrible. And and then, mm. and then it's like my brain invented reasons for why that was the case. And then when I had kids is when it really, really came to the, the forefront for me because the, the obsessive thoughts I began having about my own children was that I would, that I would abuse them in ways that I had been abused. And I, and I didn't remember that I had been abused is the thing, really. Oh. And so, like, where was this coming from? What kind of wicked... Yeah person am I? And so I had suspected OCD from nearly the beginning um, because I'm an academic. And so what I do is research and I just plowed into the research and I kept pushing it aside as, eh, probably not. But then after my first kid was born and I just was racked by anxiety, like nearly constant state of anxiety for six months straight is when I finally darkened the doors of a mental health profession. What kind of thoughts about yourself did you have when you first started therapy? Like, why did you think you were there? I first went so that a professional could tell me that I needed to be locked up. Mm. I didn't turn myself into the police but because I hadn't committed any crimes. But I went specifically so someone in a white coat with authority could say, now you belong in an insane asylum. So essentially you wanted someone to agree with the lie about you that you were believing. Yeah, because see, I managed to pull the wool over everyone else's eyes in my life. Mm. Like everyone I mentioned this to, I was convinced that I had somehow diluted. No, no, you don't understand. I'm gross and disgusting and terrible. And mm. my wife would tell me, no, I'm not. But she just doesn't know, right? Or my my in-laws or my own dad or whatever, right? Like they were all diluted. They didn't understand. I can be, I'm a charming guy, right? I could be persuasive. And so I just needed someone with objectivity to assess me and tell me that I was nuts uh, or wicked or both. I'm curious too, what made you switch from seeking help in the religious sphere to seeking help in the potentially secular, um, but but going to a mental health professional rather than a church leader? Oh, um, how much time is this podcast? Um, <laughs> so I was nervous to tell any religious person anything, any religious leader anything at all about my mental health state. I was pretty sure that it was a mental health issue and not primarily a religious issue or moral, moral issue. Maybe mm-hmm. um, I got, I became convinced that I was sick and I don't know why I was sick, but I figured I was, but the, the religious responses I'd had up to now were not helpful. It was a series of, well, just pray scripture, right? Like just remember your identity, like remember who you are in Christ. And that's great. Like, even less helpful was people quoting Jesus who says, uh, do, do not worry or do not be anxious. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the birds aren't anxious and they get to eat and stuff. Um, and God knows when each of them falls to the ground and, and dies. I mean, don't, you know, don't be anxious as if like the problem was, I just was like choosing to do these things and I just needed to, to stop it. So I just found it completely unhelpful and just not true to my experience, right? Like, yeah. like sure, whatever scripture is saying about these things. And by this point, I was a trained um, biblical theologian. I, 
have undergraduate degree in that. I have master's degrees in English and I'm about to wrap one up in philosophy. And so like, I know how to read a text and I know how to study stuff. And it just didn't seem to me that this is what the biblical authors were addressing this kind of mental health issue. There were some, there's some darker bits that some people wondered if I had demons, but I, I was like, well, I'm not going to go down that road right now. And so um, I decided, well, I will seek help out in the world away from the, the walls of the church because it doesn't seem that the church people know anything about my problems. Did you go to a therapist that is a Christian? No. I went with wherever my health insurance would pay. And <laughs> Smart. That turned out to be this psychologist who was not impressed particularly with me. And that was a good thing. She did a lot by her affect to diffuse. I was just not scary. I was like, I'm thinking of these thoughts. And she's like, how do you feel about that? It's terrible. It's awful. What's wrong with me? We haven't established that anything's wrong with you, you know? And that was really useful for like, just de-escalating the like inner panic. Mm. She didn't diagnose me with OCD at the time. Um, and we, I did like 12 sessions, which is what insurance would pay for. It strikes me that she was doing what a good parent should do when their child is in crisis is, is hold that space and containment. Yes. Well, you know, things simmered down to a boil. 14 months later, my second child was born and it all spiked again. Mm. And this time I went to see a Christian counselor who wanted to clarify that she was not a biblical counselor. And <laughs> Katie's giving me the thumbs up for that. <laughs> um, she says, I happen to be a Christian, but I, you know, contemporary psychological modalities or therapeutic modalities are what I practice. Happy to integrate your faith, um, the faith that we share. And she, after one or two sessions, she said, I can't help you because I think you have OCD and I'm not trained for that. But here you go. Here's a list of resources. Call these mm. people. Wow. And I said, Oh, OCD. Isn't that the weird, like, organize your closet thing? So I went to see this guy who has his counseling degree from Dallas Theological Seminary, um, has tons of post-master's um, certifications for OCD stuff. I mean, he trains therapists, facilitated for all this. He's written on it. Just a brilliant guy. And I went to see him. And on my first first visit, he showed me that, that Bob Newhart clip. <laughs> He's like, this is kind of what we're going to do. Just stop it. But in a, in a particular way, he sent me home with this questionnaire and I came back and he's like, yeah, you definitely have OCD in these categories. You know, good thing about this is in mental health, there's not a lot of silver bullets, but for OCD, there is one and it's called exposure response prevention therapy. Uh, if you're motivated, I'll have you in and out in 16 weeks. I said, oh, I can be better in 16 weeks. He's wow. like, well, I wouldn't say you'd be better necessarily. Just this won't be a particular problem for you. And you'll find all your other problems that you've been distracted from. Hmm. And we did. And 16 weeks later, my subjective units of distress level was down at like nothing. So I went in with like an eight or a nine for yeah. most of the time. We got those down to close to zero. So that was 16 weeks of exposure response therapy. Mm -hmm. You were better towards the end, like your distress levels were lower. At what point did your realization of or addressing the abuse you experienced as a child factor into your healing journey and your understanding of yourself? And so at the time it didn't. I, I just did not recall. It's almost as if God was waiting 
until I would be able to handle my traumatic past. So he led me through a very, very awesome turnaround from the OCD. And then about six months later, I um, had a very terrible conversation with the close family member and I began having nightmares about the abuse I suffered, like it it triggered uh, a complex post-traumatic stress break. So I ended up on leave of absence from work for like four months. I was suicidal, um, not actively, but a lot of ideation. I was just flooded with memories of abuse and I just was not sure what to do or where to turn. I ended up going to see two different people that specialize in trauma uh, work. My, My PTS recovery involved significant integration of faith and spirituality and a life of prayer, much more than the OCD. That sounds really scary and difficult. Just the the idea of like forgetting, like you're, you, I think referred to it earlier as your brain shielding you or protecting you from that. And then it all coming flooding back in all at once. And also like you have a life, so you had other things to worry about too. You know, it just it sounds really overwhelming. Yeah. Um, it was, it was hard to be a dad especially when my uh, kids became the age ages I that I was when I suffered. It was hard on my wife, who had to bear a lot of the burden. But through it all, a close group of friends I always kept in the loop um, on what I was going through. And the really the way that, this, that my trauma was largely treated, has been largely treated, is through two approaches. One is this uh, EMDR, EMDR. So we would take, tra- we would take specific traumatic memories and... We would present them, I mean, I'd bring them up, and then we just go through the memory. And as we went through, I would be able, the memory would be reworked so that it would become integrated into my regular memory instead of being a trauma thing. And in like most of these memories, they they were reworked in such a way that Christ Himself rescues me. Wow! And it was just deeply, deeply religious, deeply compelling. I was actually just discharged from therapy about three months ago. The last one we worked through, I had a conversation with uh, St. Michael the Archangel in this reworking of my memory, and he helped me to rescue, because one of the things I was doing in these memories was rescuing my younger self and learning to reparent, reparent my own, my own inner child. And so he helped me with that. And also the other big influence for me in reworking these memories was, was Mary, the mother of, of Jesus. So spoiler alert, I'm an Anglican and... We do, we do saints. And uh, I brought this <laughs> icon it. that I had commissioned. Wow. Wow. Can you describe so it to it's us? So um, it's in the Coptic tradition uh, of Egypt, and it's Mary's coronation as queen of heaven. You get two angels putting the crown on her. She's holding Jesus. She's dressed all in red, um, sitting on a throne of, star- of sorts, surrounded by the night sky. But it's just her and her glory and caring for her, for her child and she told me she would be my mother. And that's proved true. That's proved true for me. Greg, when you think back to where you were 10 years ago that this first started coming up, would you say? When you think back to yourself then, or if you were to talk to someone now who's starting to deal with these same things that you've dealt with, what would you say? How would you advise or encourage them or even yourself? I think the first thing I'd say is you're not alone and you're not crazy. Very few people Mm -hmm. are actually crazy. That's extremely uncommon. 
most of us have some level of mental distress at some point. And uh, in the same way that some people suffer from various complex diseases of the body, we also have diseases of our minds that can be harmful. And then I'd say that while faith should inform, I mean, if you're a Christian, everything, follow the expertise, right? Follow the expertise. Find the people that have specialized in the thing that you struggle with. And then make sure, like, interview your potential therapists or whoever to, to see if they're going to be a be a good fit. Because often we feel overwhelmed because we don't feel like there are answers or solutions to our problems. That's just because we don't know about them in, in the way that people that are well-trained know about them. And then I guess the other thing I'd say is there probably is not much of a quick fix. If the goal is, like, not suffer anymore... I'm not sure you're going to become happy, right? I get this quote from a book David Dark wrote called The Sacredness of Questioning Everything. He said, God will not be sought or found by lying optimism. We are to call it like we see it. I was just going to say there's that phrase these days too of toxic positivity. And I feel like it's kind of along the same lines of what you just shared. Like sometimes it's actually really harmful to pretend that everything is going to be okay. It, It might not. And I I don't mean to be the Debbie Downer, but if church is just extroverts for Jesus, then it's not going to be true to the, the suffering of the world. I really appreciate what you're sharing, Greg, and how realistically and yet not hopelessly you are encouraging, advising someone here. Yeah. To wrap up our conversation, I have one more question for you. And actually, we have two more questions. The first one is, how has your theology of suffering changed? I didn't have a theology of suffering. I I had a naive triumphalism that, you know, God's just going to do what God's going to do and it's all good and just, you know, go through life. And I grew up in a church tradition that we didn't believe in like much of a future. It was just like Jesus will come back and that's it. So I don't have any of like the rapture baggage or any of that stuff. But that was also kind of like nerve wracking because like every night at dinner, my dad would always pray and come, you know, right now, Lord Jesus. One of these days it was going to happen. (laughs) like wait (laughs) i want to eat my mac and cheese (laughs) like just to show up at some point and until then you just kind of go through life do whatever but the idea that there were like that there was real pain and suffering was unknown to me until i began actually experiencing it myself and at first it pushed me away from the faith that same time that the ocd thoughts began was around the same time that i tried to not be a christian anymore and i i told Mm -hmm. god i was done I I did not want the burden of having to love my neighbor as myself. And I didn't believe in this sky fairy that would make all things new someday. But I woke up the next morning after that and I was still a Christian. And I I just, I don't know, I sat down with a friend and I told her about that. And she said, well, I don't know, maybe that's because faith is a gift. And so it's in there. It's, it's not from you. So you might want to figure that one out. And so my theology of suffering began primarily as a way to explain why why God felt so absent in my life, mm. why he would let me suffer these things. I mean, I realized I, I felt like I deserved the suffering also because I'm a terrible person, but like my wife didn't deserve a terrible husband like me. My kids didn't deserve a terrible father like me. Life would just be better if I wouldn't in the picture. I regret marrying and having children because now I've brought, I've, I've inflicted my horrendous self on others. But slowly, slowly I learned that there was such a thing as love, of of unconditional positive regard. I think that's a therapy term. 
and that, that, that it was po- that, that was actually a, a possibility. Like, sure, I could talk all day long about how God loves us all, but it slowly dawned on me after I went to after I went to Germany for studying abroad in college and saw the concentration camps. It eventually dawned on me, and this is a notion that uh, I think Ellie Wiesel has in in his book Night, that God died with each of those who were who were slaughtered, and God suffers along uh, with all of us who suffer. Um, the word compassion just means to suffer with, and I could not understand how to go through life apart from an incarnation where God himself not only took on flesh, but suffered in the flesh. Like God has literally has skin in the game. And so no, no alternative religious system appeals to me because God doesn't suffer in those. And atheism has nothing to offer me. Like, okay, if Christianity is not true, I really, I mean, I'm just going to act like it is because, because that's better. Because there's no, there's no comfort without God either. Right now I'm doing a master's degree in philosophy and so I've been doing this whole like doctrine of God and philosophy of God and big, big, like abstract notions. And we, we got to this question of like the problem of suffering and like, there's a good, there's really good philosophical answers that are just not emotionally or psychologically persuasive. And, but what I find is persuasive is that God himself enters into my pain with me. And I literally experienced that in my um, reworking of my traumatic memories. He literally suffers with me. And I ended up in one of my seasons of really working through this stuff, rereading a book written by a former professor of mine called Hurting with God. And the professor who wrote it, Lynn Pemberton is the author. He's an Old Testament scholar and he himself deals with chronic pain and he had a messy divorce. And um, so he tells that story. It's half memoir, half biblical scholarship, walking through the anatomy of, of a psalm of lament. And I ended up writing a psalm of lament based on his of his rubric. And so the, the ability to accuse God as an act of faith seems to be a uniquely Judeo-Christian movement. And I'm particularly comforted by Psalm 22 because this is what Jesus prays on the cross. And in it, the psalmist is suffering and he specifically accuses God of abandoning him as an act of faith, right? And towards the end of the psalm, he realizes that no, the father does not turn his face away from his afflicted. He's right there with him. If I didn't have that, and then the whole communion of saints that have gone through all of this before me have suffered as well, hmm. I, I don't know. I don't think I can make sense of anything. It sounds like you are still a Christian because there's no hope outside of this. Well, I'd wanna, I want to clarify that just slightly um, and say, I'm still a Christian because of my suffering. I don't have a good explanation for my suffering without Christianity. It actually is a movement towards faith for me. I, I do want to hedge a bit and say, what hope is there outside of this? Because I think lots of people have hope outside of my understanding of the Christian system. Uh, what, I will want to, what I do want to say is I do believe, ultimately, whatever hope and comfort there is outside the institutional walls of the church in other religions is all, all points back to Christ. But I think Christ himself does plenty of good work where he doesn't have permission. but I'm wondering if you'd be willing to read something for us, a Bible verse or passage that has carried you in your time of suffering. Before you share the scripture you brought with us, we just want to thank you for the gift of your time, your story, your honesty, for the gift of your wrestling and the wisdom that you've gleaned from that. We're so honored that you joined us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, It's been a real honor.
Okay, this is Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me, from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted, and you did deliver them. To you they cried and were saved. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. But I am a worm and no man, scorned by men and despised by the people. All who see me mock at me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He committed his cause to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You did keep me safe upon my mother's breasts. Upon you was I cast from birth, and since my mother bore me, you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is is near and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaves to my jaws. You lay me down in the dust of death. Yea, dogs are round about me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my raiment they cast lots. But you, O Lord, be not far off. O you, my help, hasten to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion, my afflicted soul from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you sons of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you sons of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hid his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will pay before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. Yea, to him shall all the proud of the earth bow down. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, and he who cannot keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. Men shall tell of the Lord to the coming generation, and proclaim his deliverance to a people yet unborn, that he has wrought it.